Let me invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 17. Because of the length of our passage this morning, I'm going to just jump right in. As she was rummaging through some boxes at our home, Carolyn stumbled upon a, a stack of some old-looking documents, and as curiosity got to her, she opened them and found that it was a, a stack that my mother had sent to us of my old report cards. And she noticed on them there was a refrain that ran almost without exception that the teachers had all noted every semester, every grade, has potential if only he would apply himself. Now, I don't know who it was that said that the word potential was a curse, but by the time I got into seventh grade, I would have certainly agreed. Because the word potential is one of those subtle things. It's one of those backhanded words. In one sense, it certainly is a compliment, because when they say somebody has potential, it shows that they, that they appear to have certain giftedness, a certain aptitude. There's, there's a promise with their life. But on the other hand, when you get down to it, regardless of how much promise there is, when they say they have potential, they're saying that no matter what the promise is, there's just no reality. It's just not there yet. And that was certainly true of my academic development. Now, I don't know if I'm alone in that, if some of you would have perhaps been delayed in your development and showed potential but didn't show the realization of it. Uh, but I do know that I'm not alone. If there's no one else that is here that had that as part of their lives, or even perhaps it was descriptive of them now, it certainly would be an appropriate description of the nation of Israel at the point in their story where we're going to jump in this morning. They were called, the people of God, they were called from among the nations, and God said, I will be your God, and you will be my people, and I will bless you, and I will provide for you, and I will bless anyone who blesses you, I will curse anyone who curses you, I will defend you, I will be faithful. And even if you are faithless, I will still remain faithful to you. And with such a declaration and a demonstration of God's power and his provision throughout the time that God had brought them into this land and continued to be with them, time and again God had proven himself to be faithful and proven his love to the people. How does Israel respond to this wonderful invitation to be the people of God? There are people who live in fear and faithlessness, and continual complaining. They complain about where they live. They complain about what God provides for them. And even as we looked a couple of weeks ago, even in this very book, the people then complained about who their leader was, which happens for a lot of us, except in this case, their leader was God. God was the king over the nation, and they said, we want another king. And so they essentially fired God and wanted somebody that was more like them. They were a people who knew they had been called, and yet they never really seemed to appreciate how greatly they had been blessed. Even if they recognized the blessings, there was always something else that they wanted, that they felt that they needed, or felt that they deserved. Now this morning we pick up our story at a very familiar place. It's a story that's familiar to most people. The people are, the, Israel, is, we, as we pick up, is preparing for battle under the leadership of, of King Saul. And Israel, at this point, they still have all of that promise and all of the promises of God that belong to them. They've experienced a number of victories in the battles that they've already, already engaged in. And yet, 
even with all that they have been given, they're still a shadow of what they could be. They're a shadow of what they should be. And they're a pale comparison of what they will be according to God's promise at some point in time. But as we read the story this morning and as we study it, there is a question that I want to embed in your minds that would serve kind of as an undercurrent through the whole story. And the question simply is this, what does it take to move from potential to realization? I think that the story of David versus Goliath gives us a key to unlocking our potential. Now, as I said a moment ago, it certainly is a very familiar story, whether you grew up in church or outside of the church. Everyone seems to know this story. One way we know this is it would be difficult to find a sports columnist or a sportscaster who at one time or another has not made reference to this story as they were doing their job. Anytime there's a match or a game where you have one team that is a powerhouse and another team that seems to be significantly overmatched or, or smaller or less talented, they always raise the, this story, bring this story up and talk about it being a David versus Goliath contest. And that would make no sense whatsoever unless the, the sports columnist or the sports commentators had some reason to believe that everyone in our culture knows this story. So no matter who we are, people are familiar with the story. We realize that it signifies something big versus something small, something significant versus something that is insignificant, something that is, is just immense versus something that is, is weak. But there's far more to the story than that. So this morning when we look at this, I don't want to undercut what you've learned growing up, but I do want to look at this story with both a different lens and a different approach uh, than I uh, normally approach things. We're going to work through the story rather than my reading through, again, because of the length of it, rather than reading and and talking about it. We'll read through, and then at certain points, uh, for the sake of time, I'll just summarize and and point to pertinent verses. And we'll, we'll pull out applications through each of what I'm calling the three acts of this particular chapter, beginning with the challenge then moving into the faith, and then finishing up with the battle. But in each of those acts, there's things not only for us to understand, but there are applications for our lives. And then as we wrap it all up, it's where the different lens may most most likely come to to bear for our our thinking uh, as we see what the story has and holds out for us and help us to unlock the potential that we have that we have not realized. Because God has said, what we will be has not yet been made known. So no matter who you are, there is potential. But it is yet to be met. Before we jump into the story, let me pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that your promise would be made true here. That you promise that your word does not come back empty. That it always accomplishes its purpose. I pray that through this study, we would know more about you. We would also know more about ourselves. Whether you're revealing uh, sin in our lives or giving us encouragement, Lord, help us to understand that you reveal all things for the purpose of helping us to die to ourselves and to grow to be more like Jesus. Lord, that you use your word and your spirit applies it, that we may become what you have ordained for us to be. Lord, use this study as one step toward that purpose. 
let your word speak to us, not only informing our minds, but inspiring our hearts and shaping our lives. I pray all of this in the name of Christ, who is the word incarnated. Let's begin with the challenge, and so we'll begin reading in verse 1 and looking through verse 11 here. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah, and Ephes uh, Demim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in a line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood, and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself, and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now the scene seems fairly obvious. It's not difficult to picture in your minds. There's a lot of description that is here. And what you have is the battle lines are drawn up. You have two hillsides, two mountains, one, um, an army on each with a valley below. And they're preparing themselves for a tremendous battle. One of the things that's helpful for us to understand that is not, uh, not as always understood is what the practice was in ancient warfare. It was fairly common, the situation that we have on the page here before us was a fairly common scenario. While the armies would gather and prepare for a battle, rather than having all of the thousands of people coming and and engaging in warfare, a lot of times what the armies would do is they would each pick a champion to represent them, and they would send the two men out, and they would fight. And the winner took all. So rather than having thousands or hundreds or thousands of people bloodied and and killed, they decided that we will just take the, the best. You send your best. We'll send our best. They will fight winner take all. And the stakes were very high. You see, saw, see uh, Goliath uh, laying them out here uh, as he's taunting and calling out to Israel. He's saying that if I win, then you become our slaves, and if you win, we'll become your slaves. So the stakes were tremendously high even as the battle was fought by these simple, uh, by these representatives. It's helpful for us to understand that if we were to understand the mindset of, of the people in Israel as they look down in this valley and see uh, this, uh, uh, this uh, monstrous uh, warrior calling them out for battle. We're told over and again that they were afraid, but we need to understand these were not cowards. These were soldiers. They were seasoned soldiers. They had been in battle a number of times before. 
They probably were not particularly afraid for their own lives because whenever they went to battle, they knew that they were risking their own life. But the stakes being high here, that the winner takes all, and it was embedded in a particular representative. Each man was looking at the guy that they would have potentially had to fight, asking themselves, can I beat this guy? And everyone saying to themselves, there's just no way. They may have been willing to lay down their own life and may have been willing to engage in battle, but they had to be thinking about not just their own life as the soldiers, as the warriors that they were, but if I take this guy on and I can't beat him, am I willing to try to take him on and subject my wife and my kids and my neighbors and my friends, the whole nation of Israel, am I willing to try to take this guy on and if I fail, everyone is put into slavery? They had good reason to be afraid because they they looked at this guy and realized there was no way that they could win. They perhaps hoped that somebody else might step up, but they knew one another, and they knew they were facing an opponent that was unlike anyone else that they had fought in this way. But the gauntlet had been laid down. This was the challenge that Goliath had laid down for them, this, this seasoned warrior among the Philistines. Now, something else that's here that is not as easily noticed is the detail. Hebrew literature, you usually don't get a lot of detail. If this was a typical Hebrew story that you find in the Old Testament, it would read something like this. The, the Philistines were on one side, the, uh, the Israelites were on the other side, the Philistines sent out a champion, and he was a big guy. And that's about all that you would get. That's the way that Hebrew literature usually gets. Now, we don't notice the details in this story because most of our literature, most of our novels are just filled with graphic, knowledge, uh, graphic information to the point that we have no interest, uh, but it, it you know, paints the scene. So somebody might write something and say, you know, the, the man and the woman, they met down by the lake while the sun was glistening off of the waves, which were rippling with the wind. It, you get more information than you could possibly need, and frankly, more than I usually want. But that's the way that our, that's the way that our literature presents things. And so when we see details in, in, like this, we're, we're not even close to what we're used to, but we don't notice that it's more than what we normally get when we're reading Old Testament accounts. But there's something significant in the fact that the author here gives us a lot of details. The author's drawing our attention by giving these details and saying this is no ordinary battle. This is important. In fact, this is so important we're going to give details about what they were facing. Because the author wants us to realize that this was an important point to Israel. If they were to engage in this battle and lose, there is no more Israel. They would have been defeated. They would have been totally subsumed into slavery. And Israel ceases to be, and then God and all of his promises would be proven to be empty. So this is an important battle. This is an important event that is, is here. And in this important event, you've got this champion on the other side, this Goliath that's described here as just being this mammoth, this, this tremendous warrior. And as we read ahead in verse 16, you see that every day for 40 days, morning and night, he came out and he issued that same challenge. I defy the people of Israel, send somebody down. And even in a mocking way saying, you know, I, I'm just the Philistine and you're the servants of Saul. And he was mocking the fact that the Israelites believed that they were the people of God. And he's saying, Send somebody down, send somebody down, day in and day out. Forty days this was taking place. I want to stop for just a moment, and I want to encourage you to just think about a challenge you have in your own life. What makes it so troubling? 
one of the things that we're prone to do when we have a challenge, something that truly troubles us, is we, we stop and we become very conscious of the details. We study the details. We know everything there is to know about it. The more details we take in, the more it convinces us that we can't possibly prevail. And so the more we think about it, the more frightening the challenge becomes. The more we become aware of mistakes, what if I fail? I, I just share that at this point primarily because that was the mindset of the, of the men of Israel. They were facing this guy, and they're looking at him for 40 days, and they're just seeing this, the size of this guy. And the details of this text tell us something else, too, that we might not really think about. But it talks about the fact that he has a bronze hat and a bronze spear and a bronze leggings. And it tells us more than Goliath-like bronze. See, bronze was relatively new. It was just the beginning of the bronze age. And so bronze weapons and bronze defense uh, uh, materials were not widely had. But Goliath was decked from head to toe in bronze. And so if we think about what this picture is telling us about the frightening thing for the men of Israel is not only was this guy bigger, stronger, meaner, uglier, and more experienced than they could possibly overcome. He was also essentially high-tech. I mean, for their day, he not only was physically stronger, but then he had the best technological advances on his side as well. And so not only could they not beat him man-to-man, but then you throw on top that he had weapons. He had, he had tools that they didn't even have. And so it just shows the impossibility of their situation. And we begin to understand why they were so frightened. Because the stakes were high. They couldn't win. Now we move to the second act, in which I'll just call the faith. The battle lines have already been drawn, and we begin reading in verse 12. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, uh, the man was already old and advanced in years, and the three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And then as we pick up a little bit uh, further in verse 15, uh, David went back and forth uh, from Saul to feed his father's sheep at, at Bethlehem. And for 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his, his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, Take for yourself, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain, these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousands. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. And so while the battle was, was awaiting, the older brothers were part of the army, fierce soldiers, and David was going back and forth, taking care of things at the home front, and his father was sending him to the front with care packages, cookies for the brothers to make sure they were all right, and even sending some cheeses for the commander of the army, and then saying, come back and don't just tell me how they're doing, but bring some token, bring me some evidence that they are safe, that they are okay. And so David would go back and forth, and that's what we see having, taking place in these next several verses. As David goes back and forth uh, uh, from time to time, and he brings these care packages to his brothers, his curiosity seems to have gotten the better of him. And now we see in the following verses that David, uh, in verse 19, 
Now Saul and, the val- uh, Saul and, and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning, and he left the sheep with the keeper, and he took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment where the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle against uh, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And so David fulfills what he's supposed to do. The battle lines are drawing. David runs up while the people are assembling uh, on the battle lines. He drops everything off with the uh, guy who's in charge of all of, the, uh, all of the provisions. And then he runs up to the officer. You have the army getting ready, to, uh, getting ready for battle. And you have this teenager who just drops a thing and he runs and he's chatting with his brothers and with the other soldiers. Whether he did this before or not, we, we don't know. But on this particular day, it's interesting because it says that he heard. He heard the challenge that Goliath offers. And David enters into, David's curious, and he's hearing the other soldiers, the Israeli soldiers talking about, did you see that guy? There's 40 days later, they're still talking about this guy that's raising this challenge. And they start talking about promises that Saul had made. Saul had promised that he would enrich and even give his daughter to anybody that was willing to step up, fight this guy, and beat him. But the soldiers all said that, you know, essentially, who's, who's crazy enough to do this? And David was curious, and he starts talking. He says, now, tell me again what it is the winner is going to get. And then he asks an interesting question. It's an important question when we have a challenge. He says, who is this guy? And the reason that's important is when we have a challenge, an opponent, whether it's a person or a circumstance, it's important that we understand that we can at least name the opponent, that we can identify it. David says, who is this guy? And then David starts talking. He starts talking about, somebody ought to do something. You know, maybe I'll go do something. And the soldier's kind of laughing, but somehow word spread. First, his brothers hear about it, and they get ticked off, and they just said, you know, you've always been an obnoxious kid, and now you're just showing it to everybody else. And so his brothers were ticked. And apparently word got to, to Saul. Because in verse 31, we see, it says, when the words of David spoke were heard, They repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. Now, why Saul cares about what some teenager is talking about, I have no idea. Maybe after 40 days, knowing they're not going into battle, he just was needing some amusement, and having some teenager talk about what he doesn't know about would bring that for him. I mean, imagine that, a teenager just running off in the mouth and not knowing what they're talking about. But it's interesting, Saul calls for him, and then David says, somebody needs to do this, I'll go do it. Saul says the only thing that is reasonable, the only thing that is rational here, especially Saul, the warrior, understanding what's at stake, he says, you can't do it. Picking up in verse 32, and David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth, and he's been a man of war from his youth. In other words, he's been doing this. He's been killing people since before you were born. Saul's not speaking cowardly here. Saul's speaking reasonably. He's responsible for all of Israel. He is the king. He's getting ready to be impeached at some time, but he's nevertheless still the king. And he doesn't want to see his people put into slavery, and he's also aware that if his people get into slavery, chances are, as the king, he's now dead because they'll they'll kill the king as a show of power. And this teenager is saying, I'll go do it. And Saul says, there's just no way that you can do it. But it's interesting here because David then doesn't take no for an answer. 
David makes his case. We pick up in verse 34. David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after it and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. David is saying, making his case. He's saying, here's the experience I have. He's basically giving his resume. We don't know what Saul is thinking as he's listening, but David goes on in verse 37. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the, from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistines. And what's amazing is that David's faith is now contagious because we see a transformation taking place in Saul. Saul, who was being wise, being deliberate, being responsible, realizing that there's no chance that David would possibly win. He's being reminded, not so much impressed by David's experience, but that it is God who has provided, and God who has promised protection, and God who has promised that his people will bless all of the earth. Saul's faith is sparked, stoked by David's faith. It's a good reminder for us to know that when our lives are are lived out in faith, we our faith can be contagious. We bring encouragement to the people who are around us. The word encouragement literally meaning to give courage. Saul has a transformation. His focus is now taken off of the challenge, and he's now apparently going back to the Lord. Because again, Saul is not thinking, I'm sick and tired of hearing this kid talk. We'll just send him into battle. If he wins, great. And if not, at least he'll be shut up. Because if you send this kid into battle, then and he loses, which he should, then you all are enslaved because that's the deal. You send a warrior out one-on-one, whoever loses, loses it all. And so Saul's not going to just send the kid out there because the stakes are too high. Saul truly now believes because he's now believing not in David, but he's believing in the God whom David is appealing to. Saul's faith changes here. And so Saul gives him his armor and David tries it on and says, you know what, let me just be me. Let me do it my way. And here, David is an illustration to us. That there, is no, there is no success formula. There's nothing that we do that is going to bring God's favor. We don't clothe ourselves. You don't put on the WWJD bracelet and say, now I'm ready to go because now I'm fortified. What David is an illustration here to us is to realize regardless of the challenge, you just simply need to be yourself, live out your life according to your faith, Use the gifts that God has given you and wait to see God at work. Even if it doesn't make any sense, that's the only way we're going to conquer inconquerable foes, and that's what David is a a picture of here. And so we see here Saul's transformation taking place because faith truly can be contagious. It's not a matter of our sales pitch. It's just live out what you believe, even if you have reason to doubt. Our focus is on the Lord. That is contagious. Now we move finally to the battle. Verse 40, we're told what David did take, his tools. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook, and he put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Now, 
as we get Goliath's reaction as David comes marching out there, I, I want to stop and at least for a moment be sympathetic to Goliath. Verse 41, And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. So Goliath is coming ready for the battle. Finally, after 40 days, they send somebody down. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. In other words, Goliath was finally waiting for somebody to come down from these mighty men of Israel. And as he gets closer and they're getting ready to engage the battle and he sees who they send down, he's, he's angry, he's ticked, he's put out. He's, he's looking and, it's, and saying, what, what it says he was ruddy from his youth basically says he's a pretty boy. Goliath was coming to go to battle after all these days waiting for at least some competition. And he's ready, waiting for this warrior and out comes Justin Bieber. And that's... And he, and he just is thinking, this is not even worth my time. But that's the deal. And so we see Goliath in verse 43. And the Philistines said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? He's beginning to mock him. And he's talking about his, sli- you know, his slingshot and his staff. You come at me with sticks. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistines said to David, come to me and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the be- uh, beasts of the field. Now, in our culture, what we see going on here, we call it in sports, trash talking. That's what Goliath's doing. All right, if we're going to do this, let's do this. So you come and hit me with sticks. He's laughing at him. He's mocking him. And he says, okay, come on, let's just go do this. And in a minute, I'm just going to give your body and the birds can carry you off. Goliath's also doing something that we need to be aware of because we actually are subject to it in our own lives. Goliath is actually trying to strike a blow before he even brings a sword. See, when we have challenges in our life, one of the things that we do when we start uh, engaging it or we think about engaging it is we begin to hear voices, whether they come from other people, whether they come from our challenge, or whether they come from within ourselves. We keep hearing things about, you can't do this. Who do you think you are? You know what's going to happen to you if you try to take this on, if you take any step out? We hear those voices, and they demoralize us. They create a wound even before we've engaged in anything. And that's what Goliath is trying to do. That's the purpose of the trash talking here. But David's response is he trash talks right back. But his trash talk has a purpose. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord, the, uh, um, the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And then taking Goliath's trash talk, here's what David says to him. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I'll give, I'll give the dead bodies of the host of, of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. And all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And so as Goliath is saying, yeah, come on, and I'll just feed you to the birds, David says to this guy, yeah, you come on and I'll feed you to the birds. I really don't imagine that Goliath was the least bit frightened. But what's really significant here is we see David's motives. They're revealed. He's saying, I'm going to do this, and everyone on earth is going to know that God is God. The whole earth will know. David says, my actions, my life is a living Bible study. The whole world, it's evangelism. By my actions, by my stepping out, when God delivers you to me, everybody's going to know. 
So David's motive is for the purpose of evangelism, for the permission, for the fulfillment of the promise to Abram that all the nations will be blessed and people will know that God is God and all the nations will come. But then David says there's another motive that he has as well that's important for us to note. Verse 47, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and uh, and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. So he says, look, I'm doing this, and God's going to deliver you, and everybody's going to know there's evangelism. And this assembly, he's looking up on the mountain, all of the people of God, they're going to be reminded that God is God. God is faithful to his promises. While reaching the nations is an issue of evangelism, the renewal of God's people is discipleship. And it tells us here, it's a reminder to us that you and I are in constant need of being reminded about who God is, what God has promised, and what God will do. Being God's people doesn't put us on autopilot, but we have this tendency to forget. And David, as he's stepping out here, he says, it's for the purpose of evangelism and it's purpose of renewal of God's people. When God delivers you, that's what's going to, that's, that's what's going to happen. And then we see the battle. One of the things that we notice right away is this is no Hollywood story. If it was a Hollywood story or those who have tried to, you know, the music plays, it gets really dramatic and they show each person different angles and as they approach blow after blow, and you just wait for, you just wait for a victor to finally emerge and sweat and blood is, is coming down. But in this story that has been so graphic with all of the details to draw our attention to the significance of the battle, now they finally come to the battle that they're highlighting. We're waiting for the climax of the whole thing. Goliath, David, squared off. David picks up one of his five stones. He, fl- he throws it. It's done. It's all over. It is so anticlimactic. I mean, you're just waiting for a good fight. You just paid pay-per-view, and you just got ripped off. Didn't even make it out the first round. You thought you were going to go at least five rounds. He had five stones, and it's over with. But the simplicity of this battle also draws our attention compared to the details before. The simplicity of it simply shows us the power of God. God doesn't break a sweat. The power of God is at work when he is at work. This is not about David. This is about the power of God. And then what's interesting, as you read further, you realize the Philistines see their champion is done, and apparently they had no intention of fulfilling their part of the bet because it says they take off running. And what do the Israelites do? They cheer, they celebrate, and they take off after them. It's been an amazing thing because David's faith was contagious. First to Saul to send him out, then his faith is contagious to all the other people. And now having been set free because of David's victory, they are no longer afraid of what might happen to them, but they are free to pursue and they'll engage in battle. And when you engage in battle, somebody still might get hurt or die. They're not worried about that, but they are pumped and they now go on the mission that God has sent them because they realize they have already been set free because of the victory. Now, this is a great story of, uh, uh, for us, and it's, it's a wonderful story of contagious faith. And it is a reminder to us that when we live out our faith and we live it in community, that our faith can be contagious to others, whether we're the ones that are giving it or we're the ones that are receiving the benefit, the encouragement that comes from people who are seeing people who are stepping out in faith. Living our faith is a declaration that there is a God of who he is and what he does, and it's not only for the world outside, but it's a reminder to us. And we are in need of doing that. And so this, this shows us the importance of living in that community and living out our faith and what it can do for us. 
And if I was going to apply this and wrap it up in the traditional way, what I would probably say is something like this. We've now seen the details, you've seen what David did, and you've seen the effect of what David has done. Now, whatever the challenges that you face or the challenges of your friends, you go be a David. Right? And that would inspire maybe half of you. Depending on the circumstances of your life, you'd go out, you'd be fine at least for a while. But then there are others who are here. You know, on any given day, I could be numbered on the, uh, among either side. Who will look at all the people who are excited and who are pumped and are ready to go, and they may not say it out loud, but they're going to think to themselves, but I don't have the faith of David. And perhaps begin wondering as to whether they're really like second-class Christians, because all these other people seem ready to go. They're willing to face anything, to do anything, and I am scared stiff. I just don't seem to have any power. In fact, I might even wonder if I'm a Christian at all. All these other people have faith, and my faith is so weak, I don't even know if I really have faith. I certainly don't have faith like these other people seem to have. And we begin to just wonder about ourselves. We usually don't talk about it because nobody wants to confess their spiritual lack of prowess. We sit in the pews or... Perhaps we sit in the pews less frequently, going through the motions but feeling defeated. I want to tell you that while it's not wrong to apply this passage that way, there is another way, a better way, and I believe a more faithful way. It's a way that I would call a gospel application that I want to wrap up with this morning. The story is woven together in such a way that it reveals a pattern. We see a people who have a problem that they cannot possibly overcome. And they are in need of having somebody to step up on their behalf. In this case, it's David. And if the person who steps up on their behalf is able to bring victory, well, then they are set free. But if that person loses, then they, put, they are continue and get plunged into slavery. When we look at the story, we tend to identify with David. In fact, we've probably been conditioned to identify with David but I want to ask you to stop and ask yourself, who are you really most like in this story? And the reality is, for all of us, we are really most like Israel in this story. See, we all have problems in this life that we cannot overcome. And even if it's no other problem, it's, we have a problem of sin and a problem of death. We cannot do anything to overcome the guilt of our sin and death, which will hit us all at one time or another, we have nothing that we can do to fight that off. We have a problem. Now, most of us have other problems, real problems, real challenges that we are facing. But even if you don't have any others, those two, you have a problem that you cannot possibly overcome. We are in need of having one to step up on our behalf to be our representative in a winner-take-all fight. Now, throughout the Scripture, we're told that David, who was a very real historical character, was truly the king of Israel, his significance is that he points to another who was to come, known as the son of David, the true and the ultimate king who was to come in the line of David himself. And that's the person of Jesus Christ. In the beginning I asked, how do you move from potential into realization? And what we need to understand is that our hope is not wrapped up in ourselves. Our hope is wrapped up in the one to whom David points. We can get inspiration from David. 
But better yet, we can look to the one who stepped into our place, who brought victory once for all, who has imparted to us faith and the benefits of his victory, which give us encouragement and embolden us. When we are reminded of the victory that has been won and the benefits that are now ours, we are like the people of Israel. We've now been set free. We now can not only celebrate and worship and praise of the one who has brought us the victory, we now can go out on mission and do what God has called us to do, to become what God has called us to become and become more like the one who has given himself for us. It's not a matter of being inspired. It's a matter of being focused on the one to whom David, on the one who David points to. Jesus tells us in this world we're going to have trials, we're going to have obstacles. He says in this world you have trials and obstacles, but eh, don't worry about it, just do your best, you'll be fine. I hope you know that's not reality. What, David, what Jesus actually says, in this world you have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. If you are in Christ, the victory has been won. You are not in slavery to anyone. You are set free. Be encouraged. Be empowered. Be emboldened. And when you face obstacles, turn your attention not to the challenge, but to the one who has overcome the world, life and death. He is our hope. Let me pray. Father, we give praise to you for you are worthy to receive it. We give thanks to you for sending your son, not only that we may know what you are like, but for winning the victory for us that we no longer need to fear. But as we realize who we are in Christ, the victory having already been given to us, the promise that we will be what you have said that we will be, Lord, help us to look to him in his strength, substituted for our weakness we may have the hope in accordance with your promise. I pray in Jesus.